The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. All right, we're into it. The culture clash on Tuesday morning is always a rare treat. We talk about these uh, issues that confront us in our culture and uh, that also uh, lead a lot of people to uh, either behave or misbehave. You know, uh, we're going to drill down on this here in just a second, getting the Reverend Joe Boot comfortable. He's uh, come in with the weather, I guess, hampering traffic this morning. Better late than ever. The senior pastor at the Westminster Chapel in Toronto, Joe Boot. Good to have you back on the show. Nice to be back, John. Thank you. All right, catch your breath. Greta Vosper is the minister at the West Hill United Church and founder of the Canadian Centre for Progressive Christianity. How's Greta? I am great. Thank you, John. Good to see you, Joe. Nice to see you, Greta, too. You know, we were just talking before we got started. Greta, you uh, brought to my attention the fact that the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Reverend Justin Welby, uh, was talking about... You know, and this is really a curiosity to me. As head of the Anglican Church, he was suggesting that uh, gay marriage has led to a lot of people who are dying in Africa. What's the connection here? Well, his statements uh, came out um, on an interview that he was doing where he was stepping back from supporting uh, gays and the Anglican Communion moving forward in that conversation because of uh, some of the backlash that uh, Christians in Africa have been experiencing. Um, He stood at the side of a grave uh, with 369 people in it, apparently, uh, who uh, were murdered uh, because of actions uh, taken or decisions made in the United States uh, far away. And so he's arguing that the Anglican Communion has to be aware that that will happen to Christians uh, in other countries if they move forward on these kinds of rights issues, uh, disturbing uh, as they are so what to those people. So what is connection here? It's kind of like the Reverend Phelps. Remember that guy, the hate monger from Kansas, who was saying that American soldiers were dying in Afghanistan and Iraq because uh, Americans have sanctioned gay marriage. I mean, is this essentially what he's saying, Greta? Yeah, I think that's exactly what he's saying. Is, he, is that what he's saying, Joe Boot? I'm not sure about that. Um, I think that the uh, the connection is, I think, in Africa is that uh, Christian sexual morality is connected with lower rates of uh, uh, disease. Um, and uh, there is controversy, of course, around the, some of the African nations taking a very tough stance on the, on this issue. He may well have been uh, trying to say that. I'm, I'm not certain about what he's getting at there. I think there's many in the Anglican Communion in England itself who do not really know where this archbishop stands on this issue. He really did not stand in the way of gay marriage in the United Kingdom, and neither did the bishops. So uh, I'm not convinced of his uh, credentials on this particular issue. By the way, uh, it's a lot of these religious or spiritual leaders who are uh, sort of going off script and... Uh Preforming it, as it were. We had the Pope, I guess it was uh, two Sundays ago, where he was <laughs> he went uh, away from the regular Palm Sunday homily. It was last Sunday. And uh, he was, I guess, taking uh, selfies, or people were taking selfies with the Pope. And, uh, you know, man of the people, very pedestrian thing. Uh, some people saw that as potential outrage. How about you, Joe? Um, I'm not quite sure that this particular Pope, again, is uh, does seem to be freelancing it somewhat. He wants to be popular. I think his priority at the moment seems to be he wants to be 
popular with the young. He wants to uh, be seen to be connecting the Catholic Church with the with the street, with the common people. Um, I would like to hear him being more centered and focused on the gospel as opposed to uh, trying to be uh, popular, taking selfies with his with his phone. But I mean, look, this is a common touch. It's sort of like Princess Diana here. Uh, in the uh, you know with the with the people royalty being more touchable, I think he is genuinely trying in some respects to make the the Roman Catholic Church. You know, I'm not a Roman Catholic, but to be more in touch with people. Well, he's got a Twitter but, account, uh, right? Yeah. I don't even have one of those. Well, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So you're not a man of the people, but he has. Uh, Greta, is, that, is there anything you know that he could be criticized for this, or is he you know again getting down with the regular folks? I I don't think that there's really any problem with it. I mean, he went off script. Uh, didn't read the homily that he was supposed to read. But, I mean, if you're the Pope, you should be able to extemporize, I would think, without a whole lot of problems. And he did stick to his gospel message, I think, uh, which is which is a message that would resonate with many people because it's also uh, a very—it uh, was a message that's, despite the story, grounded in, in positive human values. So he was lifting that up. Um, apparently he wasn't he wasn't doing particularly well in terms of his breathing so he may be unwell but he certainly enjoyed jumping off the pope mobile and and getting taking down those with the regulars and and i mean it can't hurt him his image um i think that that as people move toward that image they need to be aware of everything that comes with it and that is the entire catholic Unless doctrine he's trying and trying to the change the brand maybe he's trying to change the brand i don't know but this brand is maybe doctor no you remember last month i guess or a month and a half ago he was criticized because he dropped what was the equivalent in italian of the f-bomb and somebody said what do you think you are justin trudeau and he said i haven't aspired to those heights just <laughs> yet uh but by the way, that Justin Trudeau thing, this has uh, led to an interesting op-ed piece in the National Post recently where uh, mm-hmm. it wonders, are swears becoming so mm-hmm. common they aren't even profanity anymore? And newspapers, media outlets uh, are constantly trying to shape-shift to reflect the vernacular, as it were, you know, common speak. And uh, they're making greater allowances for swears, making it into, like, say, the Rob Ford uh, actual transcripts of his profanity-laced diatribe, whichever one you want to choose here, uh, they'll write it all out. Uh, Some will, some won't. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just wondering, does this lead to a coarsening of our language and our society, or is it about time to reflect this gross reality uh, in print, on the air? I mean, you know, selectively, we've allowed things in context to slide by. We've got a delay, and we can work it that way, so nobody should get by. But, you know, we look at each other, Jimmy and I, and say, that was in context. That's okay. Uh, you know, uh, but sometimes we're not entirely sure. What do you think the current mood uh, or, or sensibility is, Joe? Do you think that uh, swears that we should relax a little bit on that because it's common language? Actually, I think this is a there's a actually quite a deep and significant cultural issue going on here with swearing. If you think about the terms that we use for bad language, cursing. Well, what's the opposite of cursing? Blessing. Uh, we talk about uh, swearing or false oaths. Well. There's a religious context for oath-taking, too. And then we talk about profanity. Most people don't know what the word profanity means. It means outside the temple. So we have as kind of a, a, uh, a religious uh, context in the Western culture for language, and, and it, it specifically is seen in this whole area of, of bad language, or what we would call uh, in the vernacular just swearing. And I do think that, especially since the 1960s, sexual swearing in particular, which is rep- particularly repugnant, I think, and associates the sacredness of sexuality often with um, uh, uh, 
filth so, or, or even the holy name of God. So people talk about holy F and holy S and they associate these two things together. And I think it's an expression of the fact that we've no longer believe that language and words really matter that much, that they're not connected with ultimate reality, that we're not accountable for them. And hence, we don't consider perjury of much significance anymore either. The penalties for perjury have been very much relaxed. And if, hey, if an American president lies to Congress, well, whatever, it's, it's just words. And so I think this is significant because we no longer see our language as reflecting something more important than ourselves. And to when people say F you and F this and F that, it means to, to exploit, to, uh, to... Do you think people process the information that way? Not necessarily. I think uh, I don't think they always process it in that light. I think it's it's an atmosphere now of our age that doesn't regard God or other people seriously enough to think about how we speak to one another. All right. Well, I'm going to open the lines because I'm curious about that. You know, a lot of people lament the fact the language has become coarser, uh, or is it just common speak? Do the words really matter? Yes or no? It's funny you referenced, you know, religious kinds of uh, symbolism or uh, connections to that in Quebec, for example. You know, the coarsest swear words actually are, in the Francisized uh, version anyway, the tabernacle, the chalice, and the host. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, to a lot of minds, you hear that and you say, well, that's not really as bad as the F word or even the S word. (laughs) And so, I mean, there's a hierarchy of expletives. and I don't know, Brett, I mean, uh, as we seem to dip deeper into uh, the ledger there, do you think it matters at all? Well, it, it's, I think it matters when the terms are used in a violent way. Uh, and there are some people who, who experience the terms as violent, uh, regardless of how they're being used. Um, it, profane is not outside the temple. It's outside the fence, the gate, saying that, that there are... There, there's a place within the temple that only the priests go, and that's the sacred place, and all of the rest of us um, are profane. So it's our language, basically. Profanity is the language of the people. Um, so so I, don't, I don't know that it's still as bad as it was before. Um, I don't think that Faith United Church Kingston should get T-shirts made up quite yet, though, because I think that... It's still that language, as the, as the National Post article said, it still doesn't take it doesn't take place. We don't hear it in church. We wouldn't say it to a police officer. There is still a recognition of where it can be used. And when I mean, when my kids grew up, the F word was not the four lettered F word. It was a six lettered word in my home. Right. And my kids, um, when they swore, they were taught to swear where it was appropriate and where it wasn't. Oh, they were taught they were to taught actually swear. <laughs> At the knee of the minister, we were taught (laughs) Sitting at the feet, yes. Well, and you know what? It's context, too. Obviously, because different (laughs) cultures, I cited Quebec, but, you know, your own uh, home turf there. In England, merry old England, when you hear the C word for female genitalia, it's rather casually bandied about. Mm -hmm. Here, it's definitely a a no-go zone. It's a very no-no. It's a very no-go. And and the B word, I mean, they're both both sexist words. They're very sexist words. And so there's a question about whether or not we're allowing sexism to seep into that kind of language. Or is it becoming, uh, it's sort of declawing the impact of the words because they've become so casual and commonplace they no longer have any sting to them. Well, if we think about the way blasphemy is used today, I mean, the the name of of Jesus Christ is used as a swear word so consistently and persistently that I've come across young people 
who wonder why this bloke in Palestine was given the name of a swear word. Right. You know, they're that biblically illiterate. <laughs> right. So, you well, know, whose name does he invoke when he stubs his toe? Uh, indeed. Well, well, you know, but we don't use the... People do not invoke other uh, names of other religious leaders to swear. There is, this is an aspect of the dechristianization of our culture. Really? So words do matter? Mm, There's something absolutely. very, very important at stake here? Question. I'll put it to the folks. Uh, do you believe it? That uh, our language is being coarsened, and to our detriment, does it matter? Uh, does it have significance to the point that Joe Boot just made? It's, uh, I guess, undermining the sacred. So the sacred and the profane, that's what this issue is about. Uh, let's take some calls, 870-6400. Do you notice more people are using these casual expletives these days? This is a culture clash, plain and simple. All right, back into the culture clash with the Reverend Joe Boot and Greta Vosper. We were just talking about swearing. You know, it's become so commonplace as to have uh, lost any impact, or maybe that's the point. Uh, We've just become inured to it, desensitized to it. Does it still matter how people uh, use the language? Or do you think the casual use of the swears is uh, maybe a great leap forward? Language, we're not burdened by language, shackled by good manners and civility and all the rest of that. Uh, Or is it just a good outlet? Christiana, what do you say? Yeah, I would say that we have to reflect and think about a better use of words to express ourselves. Mm-hmm. We should hold these, ourselves to higher standards, the way we communicate to one another. And for someone that most recently had to tell a colleague that you're highly offending me by the choice of words and how you're putting the words together uh, and standing for something. So I think you, you have to be mindful of everybody around y- yourself and around others you're uh, working with and talking to. Uh, that you, your words are offensive. And as mm-hmm. parents, I think you have to reflect on how you're raising your children to say it, because I think that's at the core of the problem of this conversation, that we've become desensitized to what's important and how to love one another. And and so are you, are you arguing for uh, that kind of language has its place and it just isn't in the workplace and it's not yeah, in the public place no, where I it is or not at all? Not at all. I don't think we need to express ourselves that way. I think that there's something very fundamentally wrong with having a a need or having to now say it's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, We should expect better of ourselves. I think you can be upset and be angry uh, and, and, you know, be very frustrated and try to find kinder words to describe how you're feeling. And we should expect that of our children. Well, let me ask you, though, the expletives that might be uh, in context uh, in media, do you think the media outlets should allow for that or continue to uh, write expletive deleted? Well, I think they should, and I think the problem, though, in sort of mainstream media is that we've sort of, over the last probably 10 years, have seen the incremental sort of, you know, uh, placement of words, of over-sexualization, like all of that stuff that you used to think was, you know, something that we had to be mindful of. I think we've sort of mm-hmm. allowed that open gate for every everything, so now nothing should offend us, where I think there's, there's still a place to say, you know what? I don't want to talk that way, or I don't want to express myself that way, and nor do I want you to feel that way It's my expression. Mm-hmm. All right, I appreciate it. Uh, very erudite call. William and Scarborough, what's your take? Well, I mean, I just think swearing is uneducated. Mm-hmm. Plain, I mean, it's just, I mean, if you have a brain and an education, why would you swear? I mean, there's other, uh, there's other words in the English language that you could use to describe the same feeling that you're feeling. But I, but... I'm a pastor, and when I hear the name of Jesus used as a swear word, I mean, so commonly nowadays, to me, it's just, it, to me, it, it not only hurts, but it's completely offensive. And, you know, uh, the swearing against 
women and, you know, the words using there. I mean, I'm a married man. I find that offensive as well. But I understand, you know, the Bible says out of the heart, the mouth speaks. I mean, you know, swearing, I think, not really... I mean, it comes through, I mean, it's really a heart issue why people swear, because, you know, we have so much anger in our hearts sometimes that we have no way of expressing it except through a cuss word. But really, I mean, if you're... If you're half if you're half educated, you really should be using, uh, you know, like like I believe Winston Churchill said, verbal inexactitude instead of calling somebody a liar in the British House of Commons when he was prime minister during during World War Two. All right, but in I mean, today's contemporary context, let's say you're uh, moderating a message board or something like that, do you allow expletives to get by? No. No, I mean... Right, you think it's important, then, to deter all that. I, I, I got your point. Let me move on. I appreciate it. To Stephen Pickering, what's your take, Steve? Uh, I think nowadays, uh, I, I think there's no... Sometimes there is no better way to express yourself, be it comical, anger, uh, sadness. I mean, there's so many different emotions and feelings that uh, the way you can use, uh, you know, mainly the F word or the S word, uh, you stub your thumb... Uh, someone makes you laugh, you know, that guy is, you know, you use your own word there, funny. Um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it if it's used in the proper context. I mean... So it makes the language more colorful word. and expressive. Uh, it does. I mean, uh, like, look at a Jerry Seinfeld. He's, he's got a comedian, uh, a routine, where he doesn't swear. And then he takes someone like a Kevin Hart, who does swear, and he could say the same material... I personally, when it's used in the right context, find that it adds a little bit of flavor and spice to the conversation. Uh, uh, rather than coarsening. I think, all right. I think we all recognize, though, don't we, that uh, you know, somebody stubs their toe or smacks a hammer on their finger. Mm. We expect that something might come out in the, in, the, in the moment of frustration. But I'm not that sure that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the mainstreaming and popularization of foul sometimes blasphemous, sometimes extremely uh, sexually oriented swearing that is totally offensive. I do think the previous caller had a point there that the education is a factor here. I mean, just pick up a thesaurus. If you don't think there's other better ways to, to have... There's plenty of You're words in the English language. In a thesaurus for the F word. I mean, no, I don't well, think so. No, Here's but in your mic, I mean, these words sometimes are becoming so established in the popular ver- vernacular that they're making a Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, the Oxford... They are coming branch. into the dictionaries now, but there's plenty of words in the English language to adequately express ourselves, and I think the the... Swearing that has become practically punctuation in common, typical language is an aspect of a very um, uh, poor uh, educational or a lazy uh, d- mind. development I and a lazy I mind, an idle mind. And I, I, I do recall a, a friend who at one point some kids were swearing their heads off at a skate park and, and he just said, hey, find something else in your brain. I think that laziness is a lot of it mm-hmm. and, and that if we were to encourage our kids to find other things, I think we gave our son one time a book on Shakespearean epithets so oh, that geez. he could... Uh, well, you know what? I don't know. I, I wonder if we can, ever, we can ever put that genie back into the yeah, bottle. Really. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, on another matter now, and uh, this is, I guess, something for the Petri dish, the story that we covered uh, late last week, IVF funding uh, for couples who are having trouble conceiving. And uh, the provincial government is big on this one, stepping up with uh, a program that's earmarking $58 million over three years. It's limited coverage, they say, because you'll still have to pay for the drugs. And uh, they're sort of, it's a pilot program, 
But the whole idea that the government would somehow be involved in the taxpayer helping certain certain people uh, meeting the criteria to conceive is this, you know, promoting, uh, let's say, families, larger families in Ontario. Or do you see anything wrong with this Joe Boot? I don't think it's got anything to do with uh, promoting larger families, John. I think the bottom line here, first of all, let's face the practical issue, which is that more and more women are infertile uh, and seeking this kind of treatment because having children is being left very, very late. The later you leave having children, the more you want a career first, uh, rather than having children in 20s and early 30s, the more difficult it is, obviously, to get pregnant. That's the practical point. But I think there's a contradiction here. I don't On know the one that, hand, that's scientifically substantiated, though, is it? Of course it is. How many good eggs does a woman have? The older you get, the more difficult it is to get pregnant. That's just a fact. That's a that's a that, that's that's a fact. I'm surprised you're looking at me in such shock. Well, I suppose it's post-menopausal, but... but no, the, the, the older you get, the higher the risks and the more difficult, the it, be- risks, and the more difficult it becomes to get pregnant. But I think the contradiction okay. that I see here is that on the one hand, we want to tax-fund abortion, the murder of children. On the other hand, the other end of the hospital, we're going to tax-fund people who are infertile to have babies. On the one hand, we've got liberals saying that, you know, we've got a problem with overpopulation and uh, carbon footprint reduction, so we need tax funds to pay us out of that situation. Now we need tax funds to pay for people to have children. Look. Well, or you might just uh, reframe it and say it's a matter of choice, and maybe uh, the rest of us mm. don't choose not to Why should to the taxpayer, period, pay for the killing of children, or it, having a child is not a right. Right. It, if, you want, if you want the treatment, then you should Pay for uh, it pay yourself. For it. Greta? I am concerned about this. Uh, I don't think, but I don't agree with Joe about some of the reasons. I, I think that we need to, we need to help people uh, recognize and deal with grief in their lives and, and not what, always What grief try. are you talking about? I'm talking about the grief that a woman has if she's not able to have a child or a man is not able to So it's uh, our collective burden to partner. share? Our collective burden? No, I don't. What do you mean? Well, yeah, saying- it is. It is. It's a, it's a grief burden. I don't think that we should rush in with a fix all the time. And I, and I do fall down on the carbon footprint side of it and say, at some point, we have, to, we have to have an overarching ethic around the future of the planet and not just our immediate needs. And so... No, but we're talking about IVF here. Do you I think the taxpayer should support this to the tune of $58 million, $50 million a year they're talking? I think... That, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. I, I think that we need to say no. I think oh. that we need to find a way to say no. Ah, well, there's an easy way. To be part of that grief. You and say then, no. Yeah. You say no, we will not fund so, it. Well, it's I'm nice a... to have Greta on the horns of a dilemma there, and uh, <laughs> I recognize she's on one. But, but let me I... stop you, Joe, just in, to interject, because you said uh, you don't think this is about uh, promoting families. Yeah. It's been brought to my attention that maybe it is uh, for uh, gay couples that can't conceive, you know, naturally in the sense, this facilitates the whole procedure. What do you say to that? How's that promoting family, John? How's that promoting families and how's that got to do with... Well, you're you're increasing the population. Well, I don't think that 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 context is about family. I'm all for big families. That's Ah, what I'm saying. I see. I'm all for large families. And uh, I'm saying that we cannot place upon uh, everybody saying- else. Our, our, let's take my community. It's not the fault of the or the the problem of the neighbours. If if the person who's living next door to you, as much as we might have compassion for their situation, to pay for out of the public purse their desire to have a child, they can adopt. They could. There, there are other ways of. Uh, and there are many children who need adopting in our in our society. So I think this is more about social engineering. This is, again, uh, the liberalism of our age, the progressivism of our age, trying to solve the problem of the anti-family attitude we've got that's led to infertility. 
And if we actually uh, promoted family in the proper context, this would be much less of a problem. But it's not the taxpayer's responsibility to give everybody the right to have a child. I think you're both on the same page as far we as that's concerned. Let me, different, here's Jim and Pickering. What do you say, Jim? Good morning, Oakley Show. Good morning. Listen, when we talk about infertile couples, are we still talking about men and women? Because now uh, same-sex marriage is, uh, is legal. And so I've heard anecdotally of uh, even single females who uh, avail themselves to in vitro fertilization. And I'm sure that if we uh, now permit uh, same-sex marriage and they, they have those rights, that they will also have to have the same rights to funding for in vitro fertilization. Do, we know, do you know the answer to that? I have a family member. I have a, I have a family member who is in a same-sex relationship and has a child. Uh, through artificial insemination. And so I'm certainly not going to come down on the side of we can only provide it for couples that meet someone's particular uh, definition of what marriage is. But I think that when it comes to public funding of it, we need to ask the question, where should our public funds be, be going? And if we're bringing children into the world, what kind of a world are we bringing them into? Is it one that in 40 or 80 years will be uninhabitable? And ha- did really? we not put enough money into that? Is that a consideration to uh, not fund this? I, mean, I love because... the look on your face there, Well, John. I mean, it's just such a, I think, a spurious <laughs> argument. Yeah, it I don't is think it's a spurious argument at all. I think that we need, I think our government need to start identifying where funding is got, instead of constantly borrowing from future generations in terms of ecological footprint uh-huh. in terms of financial uh, so that deters people from having families the prospects that we might live in this post-apocalyptic wasteland no, no, no. i'm saying governments should not be putting money into things when they are there are other things that we need to be considering oh, so i agree we read on the financial front look, there i mean right. I, yeah. I don't buy any of the eco justice baloney but I, but the on on the issue of the Economics. Your stuff is baloney, Joe. Easy right. now. Well, it's not a swear word, though, is it? Baloney's allowed. <laughs> okay, I'll use another word. All right. But you're saying it's not a medical priority. By the way, uh, just out of curiosity, with the uh, excess, if we can say, or unwanted embryos, is that an issue at all here? Absolutely. I mean, I, I am aware as a pastor of, of couples that who've come to me for counsel on this issue as a, as a family who've been paying for it themselves. And uh, for, for, for us... Uh, and once once an embryo has been created, once an egg has been fertilized, that has to be implanted. That's a child, obviously, from the Christian perspective. So uh, I think that is an issue. I don't think it's the, the biggest issue, though, here with respect to public funding. All right. Well, both a lively discussion. Uh, Greta Vosper, minister at the West Hill United Church, and the Reverend Joe Boot, senior pastor at the Westminster Chapel in Toronto, whose book is just out, The Mission of God, A Manifesto of Hope. Freedom Press is the publisher, and it's quite the uh, impressive tome, Joe. I thank you you both for coming in this morning, and uh, we'll talk again on another occasion. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.